0: So I wanted to start tonight's talk with a poem about suffering and the ending of suffering. It's a poem by Billy Collins, and its title is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house they must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony, full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for a barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) So that's something to do with a story, huh? So, many years ago, my husband and I were sitting in the office of our therapist. And the therapist very gently inquired of Russell, don't you have something you need to tell Mary? Which is, you know, that's a bad moment in therapy, right? (laughs) So Russell took a deep breath, and he said, I want to go to Burning Man. (laughs) I had no idea what Burning Man was, actually. And when I began to find out what it was, I was shocked, and actually quite stunned, and I was really scared. I had never imagined that this computer scientist husband of mine would do such a thing. And I went around, around, and around in my mind, and I was very, very stuck. So, in other words, I was suffering. There was a lot of dukkha. It was really unsatisfactory and really unpleasant, not that I actually noticed. I was just stuck. So last night, Donald talked about suffering and how our suffering can lead to awakening. And tonight, I want to continue with that exploration, this amazing wing of wise view on the Eightfold Path and in our list of 37 wings of awakening. So all of us in the teacher group, after all, have been listening to you now for several weeks. And we've heard in interview after interview the various forms of distress that emerge in a long retreat. And I suspect, we haven't actually taken a poll, but I think we could probably safely say that there is no one here who has not suffered. And if you're here, maybe we'd like to meet you because I don't think you've been coming to interviews, actually. <laughs> so some time ago, I was preparing to go to a very difficult meeting, one where there were a number of people who were quite angry with me. And I called up my friend, Ajahn Amro, to talk to him a little bit about how was I going to go through this event with some degree of equanimity and skillfulness and we he knew the situation, and we talked about it and chewed it around a little bit and and then, at the end, as I was hanging up, I said, "Bunte, I said, "Do you have any last words of advice?" And there was kind of a pause, and he said, "Yes, he said, "Don't suffer." So I said, "Thank you very much and then I thought, as I hung up that's all very well for you to say. You know, but how do you do that how do How do you go into those situations without suffering? How do we?" when the heart is tight and constricted and caught in that place of unhappiness, um, how do, do we open to the spaciousness and expansiveness of wise view? You know, how do we work with these wings of awakening that we've been using um, to come to that place? So here's another poem, it's from William Stafford and it's called The Thread. And he says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread." So we often begin, probably if we gathered together and we were talking and talked about our various spiritual stories, we often begin with this place of suffering and lostness And what I think is actually quite interesting, at one time in my life I was studying a lot of mythology. All creation myths begin with a period of chaos. Isn't that interesting? It's dark. It's a mess. Nothing is separate from anything else. It's really confused and nothing is clear. And that's how it is before creation happens, no matter what your system is of understanding things came to be. be. Before emergence, before clarity, there is chaos. And when we're in that dark suffering place, there's that way in which we so want to figure it out. You know, you want to understand it, you want to figure out the suffering and figure out what is this business of being human anyway, and how come it's so often really uncomfortable or even ag- agonizing. And we've talked in here a number of times, I think, I can't remember how many times the heavenly messengers have been mentioned in talks, but I think several of us have, you know, that experience that the Buddha had when he was quite young of encountering sickness and old age and death, and how that propelled him into his path of awakening. And last night, Donald, again, talked about suffering and talked about the cycle of dependent origination and how we create these cycles of suffering that go around and around and around. There's another cycle, actually. There's a cycle that's called transcend, transcendental dependent origination. Some of you who were with us in March of 2010 might remember that we spent the whole retreat talking about that. And this, this particular list describes the movement from suffering to liberation. And one of the most interesting points in that cycle is the place where our suffering, when we sit with it, when we're actually willing to look at it, leads us to that place of the first stirrings of conviction, of faith, of waking up. It's the suffering that compels us to ask questions or to read a book You know, your friend says, here, read this, maybe it will help. Or you find a teacher. And and we begin to come to our distress, whatever it is, with some sense of a thirst to be free from it. So, you know, in AA and 12-step programs, they talk about hitting bottom, that place where you have to kind of hurt enough in order to wake up. And I've often told people in my years of doing psychotherapy, particularly when I would get very, very young people who would come in, who per, were often sent there by their parents, and there was a way in which they hadn't hurt enough to do the work that was needed. You know, there was something about suffering that actually impelled people to wake up. And my friend Noah Levine tells a wonderful story about sitting in juvenile hall, you know, and there he was. He had a dad who was a meditation teacher, and. It, he was quite clear that sitting in juvenile hall was a lot of suffering. And he remembered some of the simple instructions about being with the breath. And so he began in that situation to practice. And then slowly, slowly, things began to change. And he's now um, a Dharma teacher, actually. It's so hard to remember this. You know, It's hard to remember that the suffering is where we can begin to wake up. There's a great story about Nasraddin, you know that great old Sufi, clown and sage, and and one day one of his friends came and he, they found Nasraddin. You know he was out under the streetlight and he was looking, looking, looking through the plants for something. His friend said, "Well, what are you looking for?" He said, "Well, I lost my car keys and I'm trying to find him." And his friend started to look around and he said, "Well," Where did you lose them? And he said, Oh, I lost them. I last had them out in the backyard. He said, Well, why are you looking out here under the streetlight? And he said, Because it's dark back there and this is where the light is. You know? So we do that, don't we? We don't want to go look where it's dark even if we know, even if we know that there's something to be found there. It's so counterintuitive, really. And when we do begin to look, as many of you have during this retreat. You begin to sit with that which is dark. There's a profound turning that begins to happen. That place where we begin to come to terms with our pain and our suffering, that place is in fact sacred. It's the first step in the path that can lead to liberation. Some years ago, in some other work that I was doing, I got this amazing teaching that actually comes from the Asclepian Healing Mysteries, the ancient Greek healing mysteries. And it says, God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. So, whether or not you buy into the concept of God, what that points to is there's something very, very profound about this place of woundedness. So we begin to look at it, and when we open to it, we sit with it, you know, we find that, as I think a number of you have, that there's it's a morass of stories and difficulties. It's There's so much of our who, you know, that place of there's somebody to be, in those stories and there's so much of places to go and things to do. It's all there, you know. And and we really begin to see what's happening with all these stories that we have about ourselves. Sylvia the other night talked about her friend who had just died and and how she had met him after many, many years of not seeing him. And it reminded me of when I went a couple of years ago to go to my 50th high school reunion. And, you know, it's amazing, as she said, how these people walk in and they look like, you know, somehow they look pretty much the same except they're a little deflated and more wrinkled and or some of them are actually a little bigger than they were. But one way or another, you know, it's still kind of the same person. But... It was really interesting to see where people were really different from the stories that I'd had about them when they were young. You know, and some of the kids, kids, people who were jocks or really bad students and hadn't bothered to, you know, work very hard in school had turned out to be extraordinary. Skilled people, doctoral degrees, and great success in the world. And then some of the others, you know, the ones that in the yearbook it says destined for success, you know. And those folks had had maybe a somewhat less successful life. It was really sort of like, oh, oh, I had... I had so many stories about these people. The people I didn't like, I thought were some of them were pretty interesting. And some of the people I was really excited to see again when I talked to them for a while, I realized we didn't have so much in common anymore. And it wasn't true then, but certainly no one at that gathering would have expected me to show up with purple hair. <laughs> so here's some more of the story. So my husband did indeed go off to Burning Man. And I was frantic. I was sure he was probably going to find some naked woman, probably who was painted blue. That was my story. I don't know why I thought blue, but it is what I thought. And I would lose him. You know, he would go off into the party. And so as he went year after year, because he did, I waited for that to happen. And I waited for all kinds of different things. One year, one year. I was sure that he was going to come home with purple hair. And I thought to myself, that, that would be terrible. I cannot go to the supermarket with a man with purple hair. I just can't do it. And then, you know, I am practiced for a while at that point. I thought, no, come on, this is a story. You're just making it up. He'll be fine. He'll come back with his normal color hair. So all week long, you know, the story would come up, the wave of the story, purple hair, purple hair, and then I would think, no, it's just a story, breathe, come back to the present moment, all the things you've all been doing all this week. So finally, you know, the night came when he was driving home, and he often, um, in those days, would call me from the summit near Lake Tahoe and let me know that he was getting closer to home. So I thought, okay, I'm done with the story. I really want to be rid of the story. I'm going to get it settled for once and for all. So I said, what color is your hair? And there was this long pause. And he said, magenta. (laughs) And then he said, but it will wash out. (laughs) Which it did after a few days. But you know, this was all so foreign to me. I wasn't that. I wasn't a person who had purple hair. No way. You know, I wasn't that kind of person. That was not my thing. Burning Man was something that other people did. I, they did it, whoever that they was. You know, and I wasn't like them. I was a Dharma teacher, right? I am a Dharma teacher. I'm very identified with silent meditation and with quiet and you may have noticed that retreats are not like Burning Man. You know, Inwardly, maybe they are, but outwardly, <laughs> it's pretty quiet. It does not look like Burning Man here. And I'm relatively well-behaved and relatively abstemious. I don't like late nights and crowds and parties. I'm not going to go. But the years went by, and he kept going, and he invented a wonderful service project there that works against sexual assault at Burning Man, and um, and every time he came home, you know, he seemed really happy to be with me. the The naked women never got him, and and in fact, he seemed to be better. You know, he got softer and happier and more open, and he actually began to meditate. Um, he had wonderful photos and stories and. Then I heard that there was a group that went one year from Green Gulch and they made a cardboard Zendo out on the playa and I thought, well, the Zen folks can go, you know, that's interesting. Then I heard there were some meditation teachers who go, I'm not giving out any other names. (laughs) And, you know, at my grip on the story, because I really held on to that story, loosened a bit and after a while I couldn't continue to make a choice that was entirely based out of fear, you know, I couldn't live with the limitations that that story created. So I stepped a little bit out of the story one January or February, whenever it was, and became a person who had a ticket to go to Burning Man, you know. And ultimately the day came and somewhere in there I decided, okay, I'm going to put some purple in my hair for the event. I mean, after all, I might as well go with the flow. And I went and I found that I had chosen a ferocious teacher who gave me a really, really difficult koan to practice with because I found that it was awful and wonderful and scary and fun and exhausting and hard and weird and delightful, and on and on and on. Each day, I decided to leave. Six o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up. I'd hear people still partying from the night before. I'd think, this is it. I'm done. I'm out of here. And by 10 o'clock, I'd be sitting out in the desert with our friends, drinking coffee, looking at the mountains, thinking, oh, this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll stay one more day. And it went back and forth like that, you know, leaving, staying, leaving, and staying. Every time I thought I knew who I was or what I was doing there, you know, in the next few minutes, that would be kind of blown up and I found it wasn't so. It was utterly confusing and utterly challenging. And the only way I could work with it was to accept it as a koan, one of those riddles in the Zen world that is kind of unanswerable with the thinking rational mind. So, Burning Man ended and I walked back into the world as an older woman with purple hair and found that it utterly changed my interactions with people that I encounter. I'm apparently, automatically, friendly and interesting and available. (laughs) Anyone can approach me and ask about it, anywhere. There's a few folks who stare and look confused, but mostly people. I've now had two photos taken in the supermarket, the most recent one, so my mom will know what to do. Uh, Would you mind, you know? And some group of young sidewalk musicians in Santa Cruz recently invited me to sing with their band. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The best story, actually, Uh, because I love these connections. It's it's just been amazing, and so I've kept it for two years now. And um, a couple of years ago, I had taught a retreat in Philadelphia. It was at a big Quaker center where I teach every year, and um, it had been a good retreat. You know, I was really happy. People were happy with the teachings, and so I left the retreat. And as often happens under those circumstances, somebody drove me to the airport. I said goodbye to them. I took my bag and walked in. I had my boarding pass in my hand. And coming towards me was this tall, um, one of the airport skycap people. Big, tall, black man. Very, very tall. Much taller than I am. And he said, oh, you don't have to do... I was headed towards one of the kiosks. Just come over here. You already have your boarding pass. And he got maybe a little far, just maybe to the other side of the bell there, maybe right where the bell was. And he's standing there looking down at me and he starts to laugh. And I look up at him and he had an expression of such delight on his face. And I looked at him and I said, oh, it's the hair, isn't it? And then I started to laugh and then he threw his arms around me and we had this amazing hug right there in the middle of the Philadelphia airport. I mean, this does not happen. It does not happen. You know, little old white ladies and big tall black skycaps who don't know each other don't go around hugging. It probably wasn't even normally safe. You know, it's not... I mean, he didn't know me, but he knew me. And there was a way in which we knew each other immediately. There was some kind of connection through... I don't know, you could probably say the mudita of the hair, really, um, that made it safe for us. I think I flew myself home that day, you know, like this. I was just so high and so happy and so amazed to have that kind of an experience. Who am I? Who am I? I'm not the quiet, introverted self that I thought was all that I was, you know. I'm not the conventional identity of an older woman with white hair and wrinkles you know i'm not so you know this helps me not be immediately your grandmother or your mother i may still be sent to the sidelines for being a little weird but not simply because of being old and therefore ignored which is one of the great sadnesses of our culture and every other older person in this room knows that place where we are simply invisible most of the time. Remember that river poem, the one that says, I would love to live like a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So this has felt quite a bit like I have been surprised by the unfolding of my own being. One of the main teachings in the Buddhist world about the human experience is that of the five aggregates. It says what we are, as human beings, is form, feeling, Vedana, your friend Vedana, that kind of feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So your being, whoever you are, is like an eddy in a stream around those five rocks. And the water kind of flows around those rocks and it shows up, it manifests as you for a while. And then it won't for a while, after a while. And out of that, we create a sense of self, the stories that arise as mental formations and they kind of wrap themselves around our experience. And out of them, we create intentions and actions and more actions and suffering. So it's interesting, you know, I'm 70 and a half. And I know that ahead of me at some point in the next, I'd be really lucky to get 30 years, um, I'll die. You know, because we all do. And that's some complete loss of this identity in this realm of time and space. I know I'm not going to be Mary Grace or forever. That's sort of a relief, actually. But... Um, you know, it's also a little scary to look ahead. And I really don't know who or what I am or what will emerge next. Our Zen friends have another koan that says, what was your face before you were born? What will your face be after you're born? Equally good koan, really. It's pretty interesting not to know. The question is, what is this? It's also another koan, actually. What is this? What is this? All of this. And we've talked in here about the vastness of the cosmos and the billions of galaxies. I try to talk about it as much as I can because I think it's so amazing. The more billions of stars, all the strangeness of space and time and how that hangs together. Every day, as part of my practice, when I turn my computer on in the morning and go on the internet, The first place I go, it's a practice I totally recommend to every one of you, is the Astronomy Picture of the Day. And if you don't know that site, I'll post it towards the end of the retreat, you can have it. And they have these amazing photos, a lot of them from the Hubble and that kind of thing. And it's just a reminder, like, oh yeah, it's really big out there, I'm really small. And it helps when I then go into email or whatever it is that I need to do. We know so little. We've made up so many stories. So here's one of my favorites. I went to the Exploratorium one day some years ago and walked into a room where there were a number of maps and there hanging on the wall was this most amazing map. And I looked at it and I went, Huh? It's upside down because it had the South Pole at the top and then it had Australia and it had South America and Africa and down here at the bottom was Europe and the United States and the North Pole was like, what? We're supposed to be on top. And then I read the little thing and it said it's the MacArthur map of the world. I brought one with me to put out on the board so you can see it later and And it's very popular in Australia and New Zealand, you can imagine. (laughs) Because who likes to be on the bottom all the time, right? It's actually called, I, I didn't know this until today, it's actually called the universal corrective map of the world. You know, they're just correcting our view. There's nothing that says that the South Pole's on the bottom, it isn't even top and bottom maybe it's this way with the north pole over here and the south and we're kind of going like this we just like to think somehow and you can imagine if you think about it, what that story has done to our process of thinking about the countries that are on the lower part in the lower hemisphere or, or hemisphere whatever so It's a story. It's just a concept. It's handy, maybe, but you can also see how much damage it's possibly done. The same thing, I think I mentioned the other night the business about the Big Dipper. That's a story. There's no Big Dipper, you know. Those stars are hundreds and thousands of light years apart. Or you can go the other way. You, I found out, are a microbiome. Did you know that? You are an entire civilization of bacteria and other microorganisms walking around and calling themselves you. There are ten times more bacteria in your body than cells. How's that? You know, a little creepy, right? All that, all that um, hand sanitizer, not doing any good, you know? <laughs> that, and the intestines alone, you have 100 trillion organisms amazing. You are more bacteria than you are you, it said in a recent Scientific American. And if you take any physical thing and you go in, 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 in to its smallest level, you know, then you see, if you could see all the protons and neutrons and particles, it looks remarkably like the images of the farthest out space that we know about back in those 15 billion years ago in the Big Bang. And it's interesting, actually, from the size of human beings, if you go out 10 powers of 10, you come to the outer edges of the universe. And if you go in 10 powers of 10, you come exactly to the smallest particles of the universe. We are right in the middle. And make of that what you would like. It's pretty interesting. So what is this? What's going on here? And yet, we still connect the dots and we still say, that's me, you know? I know, that's how it is. So, we've sat here in silence together. We've sat with our suffering, we've sat with our joy, our stillness. We sit as conviction arises, we sit and sit and set and you now. And many of you have re- been reporting in your interviews that things are changing. You're seeing things that you didn't see or understanding things that you didn't understand from when we began the retreat. It says at the end of the Metta Sutta, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one Uh, being freed from sense desires and with clarity of vision, I think I have those reversed, is not born again into this world. Freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, but not holding to fixed views, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, that's what brings us to an end of suffering. That's what keeps us from being reborn again into that cycle of suffering. In fact, I found Gill has a slightly different translation. He says, unattached to speculations, views, and sense desires, with clear vision, such a person will never be reborn in the cycles of suffering. So what we know is when we allow ourselves not to know, When we are not caught in fixed views, then there is much less suffering. There's a couple of poems I sometimes read when I do that, lead that meditation or a meditation similar to what Donald led this morning with the bells. One of them says, when the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. When the mind is still, The floor where I sit is endless space. Another one says, my heart is not asleep. It is awake, wide awake. Not asleep, not dreaming. Its eyes are opened wide, watching distant signals, listening on the rim of the vast silence. It is so vast, whatever it is that we're part of, old beyond our ability to comprehend. And I think we sense that there's something kind of interesting and unusual about the human experience and it's that something that it is, allows us to open to that which is sacred. And I think that's the aware presence that we've all been working with. And each one of you, I think by this point, senses the power of sitting still in the present moment, which is in fact itself a rather strange place. Because can you find the present moment? No. You know, as soon as you are aware of it, it's gone, right? It's not findable, it's enormous, it's timeless. Another saying from another tradition says, God is being without tense. No past, no future, no present, just no tense. Ajahn Chah, as Donald reminded us last night, points us to the one who knows. The one who knows. And Ajahn Sumedho says, now is the knowing. Now is the knowing. And you may have noticed that all knowing is now, isn't it? There's no knowing in the future and there's no knowing in the past. The only knowing is in the present moment. And the Buddha over and over again reminds us of how important this practice of mindfulness is, of being just here in this present moment. I've always liked the place in the Satipatthana Sutta at the end. And he says, One who practices the four establishments of mindfulness for seven years can expect one of two fruits, the highest understanding in this very life, or if there remains some residue of affliction, he can attain the fruit of no return." And then he goes on to say, let alone seven years, and then he starts dropping down six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one month, so you're in good shape here. You know, then you can expect the highest of fruits. And then he even goes lower, one week. So, What he's really saying is this is an amazing practice, that when we do it carefully and well and are really present, it seems so simple, doesn't it? The instructions are simple. Give your attention to the breath and to the body, to the flavor of your experience. Try to stay present, come back when you wander off. Notice that the mind has a lot of interesting states and does some pretty weird things. And notice that certain things are true. Notice that everything is impermanent and notice that we suffer and that it can end and that nothing is very solid. See what happens when we wake up, what helps with waking up. And so we're encouraged to to do that, to try to stay here in the present moment and then to open the hearts as well with metta and mudita and karuna and upekka. It's not just a mental exercise we're not doing this just, you know, for fun. I think you know that by now. You know, those who gathered around him and who went deeply into their practice, and many, many thousands of people since then, probably millions of people really, have experienced great freedom and great awakening and some deep understanding of their own true nature. And they, enter into and understand this place of freedom, of Nibbana, this very mysterious place. From the Udana it says, there is an ultimate reality, unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape possible here for one who is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is this ultimate reality, unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed. Escape is possible for one who is born, created, conditioned and formed." So you might remember that when the Buddha had his experience under the Bodhi tree and he was walking down the road afterwards and someone asked him who he was, And they tried all different things, you know, a wizard and a a magician. And then he said, are you a man? And finally the Buddha said, I am awake. I am awake. And it's interesting, you know, he, he had that experience. He didn't become something or someone else, did he? He remained a human being. I find this really important and really inspiring, he was a human being. He was subject to illness, backaches. You know, he had backaches, poor guy. And he died. He got to be old. He got food poisoning. He died. So the sense that I've always carried out of that is that this human experience is not a mistake. It's not something that somehow we're supposed to get out of, you know, but it's more something that we're supposed to awaken to. That it is inherently and deeply sacred. We can go into it. We can penetrate it with our awareness. We can develop clarity of vision. But it's tricky. Remember that Mara story that I told the other night? You know, the place where the man is doing walking practice and his face, he sees something on the ground in front of them and Mara's attendant says, you know, what has he found? He said he's found the truth and the attendant says doesn't that bother you? Do you like it when people find the truth? And Mara says oh no right after that they make a belief out of it. You know right after you see something in this practice how often we grab onto it oh now I've got it this is it I see impermanence clearly or I see something about self clearly that's the way it is I know it is But you know, maybe not. I found a cartoon the other day. It's in the current issue of the Shambhala Sun. There's a dad and a little boy walking down the street. And dad says, in my day, we didn't have Google. We had unanswered questions. (laughs) You can't Google, you can't Google some of this stuff. There are unanswered questions, aren't there? We can't help but see through a glass darkly, as it says in the New Testament. And you know, when I think about it, I've I've got four inches of gray matter in here. It's not very much. How could I possibly understand what is ultimately true? You know? And it's so freeing not to know, it's one, great Zen teacher who used to say, don't know, don't know. I feel like I'd like to just pick up where he left off. Don't know. Suzuki Roshi invited us to have beginner's mind. Don't know. Donald Rothberg said, remove the intention to know. Just last night, you know. So these retreats, these Vipassana retreats are extended periods of time when you don't have to know, you know, not to know, and to meet every experience as though you'd never had it before. You know, the breath, even now, how many breaths have you watched? Thousands, probably, in the last months. Forget them all. And breathe as though you've never breathed before. Don't know what the breath is. Don't know the rain or the wind or the sound of the frogs or those turkeys. I mean, what was God thinking? You know, those turkeys, they are really strange. So the other day I mentioned the the story about the Emperor Wu. I'm gonna tell you the whole thing this time because it's a really wonderful story. So the Emperor Wu, was a Chinese emperor in about the 12th century. And he was as, you know, he just sort of got interested, like all of you have actually, in things spiritual and he wanted to practice. But it's very, very hard to practice if you're an emperor and to get good advice because if you're the emperor, people kind of want to say things that you want to hear, right? Because you have a lot of power and a lot of money and all of that. So he didn't, you know, they tried to make him feel better instead of being really tough teachers, and he knew that. He knew that. So one day in his court, there appeared this very tall, red-haired, blue-eyed giant of a guy, somebody from another part of the world, and um, the emperor... Kind of looked at him, and he could realize that sometimes you can about people. Like he thought, oh, this his interest, his energy is interesting. I'll ask him a couple of questions. So he approached him, and he said, you know, as the emperor, I've built lots of schools and hospitals and monasteries and offered, you know, taking care of the monks. You know, what about the merit of doing all those good actions? And Bodhidharma, because it was Bodhidharma, looked at him and said. No merit. Well, you don't say that to the emperor, right? It's all these things he'd done, no merit. So the emperor kind of went, Oh, that's interesting. So then he said, Well, what about these volumes and volumes of spiritual teachings? You know, hundreds, thousands of pages of suttas. And Bodhidharma said, Nothing special, vast emptiness. Wow. And then the emperor said, Who are you standing there? And that's the point at which Bodhidharma said, I haven't got the foggiest notion. I don't have a clue. And the emperor was so bowled over that by the time he kind of pulled himself together, Bodhidharma was gone and he actually never saw him again, although it changed his life. And he actually then was able to practice and he would go off periodically and sign on at a monastery and scrub toilets and sweep floors and then after a while the court would realize they really did need to have an emperor and they'd buy him back you know so it became a good fundraising scheme for the monasteries i think and so he would go practice for a while and then he'd come back and be the emperor like that i heard that I read that story actually once at a period of solo retreat and I was really stuck. And I was trying to read some very, very difficult suttas that are very, very misogynistic and I just was not happy and I was questioning everything as one does sometimes. And so when he asked the question about, what about all of those spiritual teachings and all of those suttas, and Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing special, I went, yes! Yeah, right, okay, nothing special, vast emptiness. And then, the who are you? And I actually began to try it on. I recommend it as a practice. You can go out there, sit out and and ask yourself, who are you sitting there? And then just try, it. I don't know. And I'd ask the question and I'd answer the question, you know, what about these Dharma talks? You know, nothing special, vast emptiness, you know? When we let go of these concretized stories that we have about how things are, we can really then truly contemplate the mystery of being, its vastness and its unknownness. What is this? What is this? In the end, it's all mystery. It really is all mystery. But when we allow that, when we do not know who or what we are, that's when we can begin to find out what is true. And we do indeed suffer less. I went to India, another one of those teacher meetings that Sylvia was describing with the Dalai Lama. I was there in 1994, I think. And um, after the meetings were over, we went over to this little village where our friend Joanna Macy has done quite a bit of work. It's a, a whole village that came down from Tibet together and reestablished themselves, um, not as individual people here and there, but they essentially recreated their village with the wild-haired yogis who live up in the caves. And every spring they had llama dances, and we happened to be right there in time for the llama dances. And... One of her teachers um, is the um, Lama who's there and I was able to get an interview with him. It was really very special. and So I knew it was you know one of these sort of once in a lifetime things, you know. To, so I should probably play all my cards. And so finally towards the end we talked about this and that and I thought, okay, I'm gonna say my, my, my biggest thing. And so I said, you know, I I sometimes think that all I want to do is bow to the mystery of it all. And he sat there for a minute and then he got this wonderful smile and he said, don't bow to the mystery. He said, be the mystery. Be the mystery. So, you know, if I could have just one teaching at this point in my life, that would, it would be to practice this, you know, to do this practice that we do together, to be available to wake up, to be available not to know, to be available to be someone different, to even try something different. You could even try purple hair, you know, you never know. To to do something and to, to know that you don't have the definitive answer on who you are. We don't arrive at an answer I'm so sorry to tell you this, you're not going to arrive at an answer. We only continue to wake up again and again and again to our own mystery, to the mystery of cosmos, to the mystery of being. And this, I think, knowing this, knowing that we will be waking up over and over and over until that very last moment, that's wise view. Charlotte Joko Beck, great Zen teacher, died some months ago. And the last words that she said were, This too is wonder. This too is wonder. Isn't that amazing? This too is wonder. So I have one last poem. It's a little long, but I think we've got time. It's called The Silence of of the Stars. When Lawrence VanderPost one night in the Kalahari desert told the Bushmen he couldn't hear the stars singing, they didn't believe him. They looked at him half smiling. They examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then two of those small men who plant nothing, who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing, and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling, thorn-scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, do you not hear them now? And Vanderpost listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, no. They walked him slowly, like a sick man, to the small, dim circle of firelight and told him they were terribly sorry. And he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their strange loss of hearing, which was his loss now. On some clear nights, when nearby houses have turned off their televisions, when the traffic dwindles, when through streets are between sirens and the jets overhead, are between crossings when the wind is hanging fire in the fir trees and the long-eared owl in the neighboring grove between calls is regarding his own darkness. I look at the stars again as I first did to school myself in the names of constellations and remember my first sense of their terrible distance. I can still hear what I thought at the edge of silence were the inside jokes of my heartbeat my arterial traffic the sea above high sea of my inner ear myself tunelessly humming but now i know what they are my fair share of the music of the spheres and clusters of ripening stars of the songs from the throats of the old gods still tending even tone-deaf creatures through their exiles in the desert. Don't bow to the mystery. Please be the mystery. So let's just sit for a minute. So thank you very much for listening.